Welcome to the Yakcast. I am Aaron James Nicholas. When we study God in church, we study Jesus, God the Son, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Prophet, Priest, and King of God's people. Jesus, the one who heals the sick and befriends the lowest and least, the God of mercy and grace, the one who forgives the people who crucify him, the God who conquers the grave and brings all of God's people to life through his resurrection. We study Yahweh, God the Father, the God at creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God that brought the ten plagues, the God in the pillars of cloud and fire, the God of the Ten Commandments and the law, the warrior God of the judges, the God of Saul, David, Solomon, and the prophets. Some of us understand that Jesus and Yahweh are the same, that they are two persons of the Godhead we call the Trinity. We understand that even though Yahweh and Jesus are distinct in their personhood, they share the same essence as God. So whatever God is, Yahweh and Jesus are the fullness of that, that every action of God is the action of both Jesus and Yahweh, that both are present throughout all of Scripture. So to understand God and Scripture, we have to understand that truth. But we rarely study the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Even in the early creeds of the church, very little is said about the Spirit. The Apostles' Creed and the Creed of Nicaea only mention that Christians believe in the Holy Spirit. It isn't until the Nicene Creed that a more comprehensive understanding of the Spirit is first explained. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. And it isn't until the Athanasian Creed that the Church resolutely defines that the Holy Spirit is an equal and indivisible member of the Trinity, that the Spirit is to be worshipped with God the Father and God the Son as God. The Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is incomprehensible. The Holy Spirit is eternal. The Holy Spirit is almighty. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is Lord. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made, nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. And it wasn't until the renewal movement of Pentecostalism in the early 20th century that any Christian denomination really placed special emphasis on a direct, personal experience of God through baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm guilty of this in my own study. If you compiled all of my studies together, you would find a lot of study on Yahweh and Jesus, but very little on the Holy Spirit. So I'm hoping to fix that. We are going to do a three-part study on the Spirit in the Old Testament and the Spirit in the New Testament. We are going to begin by looking at the words for Spirit in the Old Testament, the Hebrew words Ruach and Neshima. Then we will begin applying our newfound understanding of those Hebrew words to the movements of the Spirit of God throughout the Old Testament. 
Finally, we'll start applying those ideas to the New Testament and start looking at the word for spirit in the New Testament, the Greek word pneuma. pneuma. But don't expect this to be a comprehensive study. We'll just be covering the basics. For a full and comprehensive study on spirit, you need to not only study the words for spirit, but also all of the associated words that spirit is connected to. For example, wisdom. We could easily do an entire study on how the spirit of God is connected to the wisdom of God. But I hope that by studying all of the instances where the word spirit is mentioned, will develop a foundational understanding of spirit so that all of the other ideas and associations with spirit throughout all of scripture will come into a sharper, understandable, and comprehensive focus. Now to clarify, the words for spirit aren't always referencing the spirit of God, as we will see, but I believe that when we understand spirit better, we understand the Bible better. One. Spirit is feminine. The Hebrew words ruach and neshama are feminine nouns. We cannot miss that because I think we have a singularly masculine image of God in our minds. A lot of us primarily view God through Jesus, the God-man. With Jesus as a son, it's really easy for us to think of Yahweh as a father. Because not only does Jesus call Yahweh father, but the name Yahweh is masculine. Though there are rare cases where Yahweh is described with feminine attributes, he is mostly understood through masculine imagery and male attributes. And because of this, most English translations of scripture use the male pronoun he for God, even in the Old Testament. So, thinking of God as male is really easy for us. But spirit as a feminine noun counterbalances all of that masculine language and helps us to see the spirit of God with a kind of femininity. Maybe we should return to our mother that art in heaven. To be clear, God is not a woman. In the Hebrew language, there are not neutral nouns. So Jesus as a man and Yahweh mostly understood as masculine is neutralized in a sense by the Holy Spirit being communicated in Hebrew as feminine. This helps us to see that the essence of the Trinity, the essence of God, is genderless, neutral, the fullness of masculinity and femininity, the fullness of the image that we, together as male and female, are made in. The spirit is wind. Ruach can mean a wind of heaven, a side wind, a breath of air, or simply air or gas. In Genesis 8.1, after God floods the earth and saves Noah, God causes the wind to blow to make the waters of the flood subside. That wind in Genesis 8.1 is Ruach. So if you'll allow me a little interpretive play, I think we can almost imagine that wind after the flood as the Spirit of God pushing the flood waters away. Or in Exodus 14, 21, Moses stretches out his hand and brings through an east wind, a ruach, to bring locusts into the land of Egypt. Could that wind be the Spirit of God bringing locusts into Egypt? Or in Exodus 15, 8 and 15, 10, Moses sings a song about how the wind, the ruach of God, is what split the waters of the Red Sea. And in Numbers 11:31, the wind, ruach, of the Lord is what brings quail into the camp of Israel so that they have meat to eat while they wandered in the desert. Could we see these instances of wind throughout scripture 
as the Spirit of God moving and helping and assisting God's people? Three. The Spirit is Creator. With the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is present and active throughout creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was present at creation, hovering over the face of the waters, hovering over the deep. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And if you'll still allow me some interpretive play, if the Spirit comes as a wind that pushes back and parts the waters throughout the Old Testament, could we almost imagine the Spirit here, separating, splitting, pushing back the waters above from the waters below, creating a space for heaven? The Spirit of the Godhead actively creating and participating in creation. Critical scholars will highlight that the Hebrew word for deep in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 may connect to this ancient word for the god of chaos in Mesopotamian mythology. I find that absolutely fascinating because it kind of hints at this idea that the Holy Spirit brought creation into order. The Holy Spirit brings chaos into order. And it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote about the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 14. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. But perhaps the most crucial role the Spirit plays in the Godhead at creation is the Spirit as the giver of life. Or Spirit is life. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The breath of life in this verse comes from the word neshima, which in various contexts can be understood as the breath of God, breath of man, or the breath of every breathing thing. But it's really closely related to the word ruach, the spirit of the living, the breathing being in humanity and animals, the gift of life that is preserved by God and that leaves us at death. I think the story of Noah really contextualizes this understanding of ruach as the spirit or breath of life. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred twenty years. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Clearly, there is a connection between the breath of life, the spirit of life, and the spirit of God. The spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Truly, the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. But, Five. the Spirit of man is distinct from the Spirit of God. Even though all life is given by the Spirit of God throughout the Old Testament, there are usually clarifiers between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of man. As I pointed out at the beginning of this study, not every instance of Ruach or Neshima, not every instance of the word Spirit is talking about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. This distinct Spirit of man is, in part, what makes us image bearers of God. 
So the context is super important in understanding whether we are talking about the spirit of a person or the spirit of God. I could give you this really, really long, exhaustive list of references that show this distinction. No! No! But if I was to summarize the content of all of the passages in the Old Testament, this distinction comes into a sharp focus. In a significant portion of Old Testament references, the word ruach is used to show a person's vivacity, vigor, courage, temper, anger, patience, disposition, trouble, bitterness, discontentedness, or their uncontrollable impulses. The spirit of man is often used to communicate a state of mind, a temperament, or an intention or condition of the heart, a mood. It can also note the strength of a person's body or be used to communicate grief, sorrow, and lamenting. The spirit of man is the seat of our emotion, desire, sorrow, and trouble. The spirit of man is the seat of our mental acts as well, our mind, our will, and our moral character. I think King David gives us a really fantastic example of this distinction in scripture in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The spirit of man is distinct from the spirit of God, but six, our spirit was made to depend on the spirit of God. The biblical writers only seem to make a separation between the spirit of God and the spirit of man after the fall. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know what I find so incredible about this verse? The context of this verse leads us to interpret a word in this passage as the cool of the day. But the word that is used in this passage is ruach. So if you were a little more loose with your interpretation, you can almost see the whole trinity present in the moment of searching and looking for Adam and Eve after the fall. The Holy Spirit is so clearly there, a person of the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is separated from Adam and Eve, searching for them because they are truly lost. I want to make something clear here. The distinction between the spirit of man and Adam and the spirit of God is still present before the fall. Adam's own spirit is again what makes him an image bearer. But before the fall, the spirit of God is in all of life in being, inspiring the work of Adam, cooperating and co-creating the world of God with him, partnering with humanity to bring the chaos of creation into a divine order, subduing it in the power and knowledge of the Spirit of God. But it's as if after the fall, there is a rift in that cooperation. The Spirit of God that was as present as the cool wind in the garden, the Spirit of God that was as present as the breath in Adam's lungs, the Spirit of all life, that Spirit is gone somehow. Not merely distinct from the Spirit of man, but separated from it in a way that it wasn't before. Because after the fall, the biblical language shifts. Then the Lord said, My Spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. We lost our eternity. We lost the giver of life. We lost the spirit. And in that loss, we truly became lost. To prove it, there's a period of time between Noah and Abraham chronicled in two chapters 
Genesis 10 and 12. In these chapters, we are given the generations after Noah in this little story of a tower called Babel. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Humanity builds this tower because they want unity among themselves, an identity together, and to be present with God in heaven. To no longer feel lost. But God confuses their languages so that the people building the tower can no longer understand one another to continue their work. Because building towers of our own design to our own purposes was never the way we were supposed to commune and cooperate with God in building his world. We were supposed to be united, identified together, and present with God through dependence on the Spirit of God. But catch this. At Pentecost in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit returned to commune with us, the disciples are given this spiritual gift called tongues. And they go out into the streets and proclaim the gospel, and people from all over the world can understand their message in their own language. At Pentecost, the confusion of languages is undone. The purpose of the Tower of Babel is fulfilled, but this time, how God intended it to be from the beginning. His people are no longer lost. But after the Spirit leaves, after the fall, there is a shift in how the Holy Spirit operates in our world. And until that glorious moment at Pentecost, the Spirit must use a chosen, inspired people to communicate God to the world. In part two of Spirit, we will unpack exactly how the Holy Spirit uses those chosen, inspired people and how the Holy Spirit cooperates with their spirit to bring image bearers into God's world again. So stay tuned. You've been listening to a downtempo devotional from the Yakcast, a young adult ministry of Crossroads Community Church. Crossroads meets at 1188 Park Avenue West in Mansfield, Ohio. You can check out our service times and more information about the church at crossroadswired.com. YA has a new website, yacrossroads.com. So if you're interested in young adult ministry, you should check that out. We have a calendar and a contact form up there, as well as links to my website, aaronjamesnicholas.com, where you can get manuscript copies of all of the Yakcasts as well as other content in order to turn these yakcasts into small group discussions and devotionals. The music from today's episode comes from my dear friends, Analecta. They just put out a new record this summer that I had a small part in making, so I was thrilled when they agreed to put their music on the Spirit episodes. You should check out the rest of their discography at analecta.bandcamp.com, A-N-A-L-E-C-T-A.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. This is the Yakcast.